Looking for a book that clearly explains the differences between Mormonism and Christianity? If so, Mormonism 101 by Mormonism Research Ministries' Bill McKeever and Eric Johnson may be what you're looking for. Mormonism 101 covers a number of topics that'll give you a better understanding of the LDS faith. Mormonism 101 is available at your favorite online bookstore or purchase it directly from Mormonism Research Ministry at mrm.org. Again, that's mrm.org. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. Does the Bible teach that mere humans can become like God? Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. And with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. Yesterday, we began looking at a Gospel Topics essay titled Becoming Like God. It was posted by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on their official website, lds.org, on February 24th, 2014. Today, we get to the section that is subtitled, What Does the Bible Say About Humans' Divine Potential? It says, Several biblical passages intimate that humans can become like God. The likeness of humans to God is emphasized in the first chapter of Genesis, quote, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, end quote. After Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of, quote, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, end quote, God said they had become as one of us, suggesting that a process of approaching godliness was already underway. Later in the Old Testament, a passage in the book of Psalms declares, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Well, let's go back to the first sentence there, because I think at the very beginning, there's a huge mistake being made here. Several biblical passages intimate that humans can become like God. If that's true, what do we do with Isaiah 46.9? Now, I'm going to read it from the Joseph Smith translation, otherwise known as the Inspired Version. According to Joseph Smith, he finished this translation in 1833. But this is what he says in Isaiah 46.9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. There is none like me. That's in the Joseph Smith translation. Exactly. So we don't have a translation problem. This wouldn't fall under the auspices of Article 8 that we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly. We would have to assume that Isaiah 46.9 in our Bibles is accurate because Joseph Smith renders it in the same way. If it says that God is God and there is none like God then how can this essay insist that several biblical passages intimate that humans can become like God? You see, the church can try to come up with some verses that they think supports that premise. 
But when you have a verse as clear as Isaiah 46.9 that says there is none like God, you can't take a verse that you think supports your premise when it violates what the Bible's actually saying. Right. I mean, you would have to say that the Bible is contradicting itself, and I don't think I'm going to go in that direction, and I don't think I have to, and I don't think even Mormons would want to go in that direction. The fact is, this is what Joseph Smith concurred with in his rendering of, of Isaiah 46, 9. So if you cannot be like God, then what's the point of this whole paper? Obviously, a lot of the verses they think support that premise have to be understood in a bit of a different way. But let's go on here. The likeness of humans to God is emphasized in the first chapter of Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Well, we do know that according to the Joseph Smith translation, Genesis 1.27 makes it very clear that the conversation is taking place between Heavenly Father, or God the Father, and Jesus, or Jehovah in Mormonism, the pre-incarnate Christ. This verse has been used to support the notion that the reason God has a body of flesh and bones is because we have a body of flesh and bones. The fact that we are created in his image proves that God has a body of flesh and bones. And as we've argued many times, if Jesus is in the conversation at this time, he did not have a body of flesh and bones when Genesis 1, and 27 was going on. So that notion has to be rejected. But now they're trying to use this verse to give the idea that when God created man in his own image, that that image was this potential to become like he is, to Mm -hmm. become the deity that he is. Don't you think, Eric, that's certainly reading a lot into the passage because it's not saying that. They have to come to the table with their preconceived ideas and try to make that passage fit that preconceived idea. But when it goes on to say, After Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God said they had become as one of us, suggesting that a process of approaching godliness was already underway. Would you draw that conclusion reading those words the way they actually read? I mean, it says that they had become as one of us not becoming but they're not becoming one of us which would suggest a process as it says it says they had become as one of us that's present tense and and uh, john devito a good friend of ours wrote on our website referring to this verse genesis 322 and this is what he wrote and i thought it was well stated however genesis 322 does not show that adam and eve will become gods as god is The verse defines in what way Adam and Eve became as one of us. It was to know good and evil. As shown above, the knowledge of good and evil was God's wisdom that was obtained unlawfully. As a result, they were removed from the Garden of Eden, where God was present, and where they would have lived forever. They were also punished in other ways. This is not something to celebrate, but to mourn. I think he's bringing out a good point here that this is a terrible thing that has happened. It's not, it should not be considered a positive attribute. And he goes on and says this, even if Genesis 3.22 did mean that Adam and Eve were to be gods, there is still a problem with this context. And you've alluded to it, Bill. 
In Genesis 3.22, God gives a statement as a completed fact. In other words, they had already become as one of us. As a result, according to what Mormons claim this verse teaches, Adam and Eve became gods at the fall. However, this would mean that they never went through the deification process, they did not obey the eternal celestial law, and they did not need Christ's atonement for this to occur. Mormons cannot, with consistency, admit that this text teaches what they say it does. Their argument would prove too much. One must remember that the passage itself defines how humans are as God to know good and evil. Mankind obtained wisdom that God had reserved for himself. This is the only way it can be said that people are as God. I think John answers that question quite well. He's absolutely correct. They had become as one of us in the context of knowing good and evil. There's no implication at all that this is going to be the beginning of a process that's eventually going to lead Adam and Eve to become deities as God is a deity. But let's go on here. It says, later in the Old Testament, a passage in the book of Psalms declares, I have said, you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, James Talmadge addresses this in the book, Jesus the Christ, on page 501. He was commissioned by the First Presidency to write about this verse because it's tied to John 10.34. But here's what James Talmadge said, and I, I might point out that what Talmadge is saying is in accord with what the First Presidency was believing and teaching at that time. So if you're going to say Talmadge got it wrong, you're going to have to say that the first presidency at that time also got it wrong. And if you're going to say they got it wrong, do you realize the dominoes that start to fall? Mm. Well, this is what Talmadge said. Divinely appointed judges called gods. In Psalm 82.6, judges invested by divine appointment are called gods. To this scripture, the Savior referred in his reply to the Jews in Solomon's porch. Judges, so authorized, officiated as the representatives of God and are honored by the exalted title, gods. Compare the similar appellation applied to Moses in Exodus 14.6 and 7.1. And then it goes on to say, Jesus Christ possessed divine authorization, not through the word of God transmitted to him by man, but as an inherent attribute. The inconsistencies of calling human judges gods and of ascribing blasphemy to the Christ who called himself the Son of God would have been apparent to the Jews, but for their sin-darkened minds. Don't you think that the writers of this article that was written within the last few years would have known about what James Talmadge has said? Well, they seem to overlook it, and now they want to try to use all sorts of interpretations for Psalm 82 that gets away from what Talmadge is saying. They focus on this divine counsel, and there's some controversy as to what that divine counsel actually entailed. Some say it could have been spiritual beings. Some say it could have been human beings. I personally am of the persuasion that when you look at this context of Psalm 82, it has to be speaking of humans, because it talks about how these gods are going to die like men. It talks about how these gods were wicked in in the way that they behaved. And certainly gods in the context of Mormonism are not supposed to behave wickedly to begin with. So there's a problem there, even with their understanding. So I think there's a lot of evidence to show that Talmadge's interpretation, which, by the way, is a very common traditional Christian interpretation of this passage, is right. 
the essay goes on and says that Jesus responded that, and he echoed Psalms, and he's referring to the passage we're talking about, is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods. So John chapter 10 is saying that in the present tense, but that doesn't make any sense because when we understand the context of John 10, he's referring to Jewish leaders who did not believe in him. And Jesus had some pretty tough words to say. Read John chapter 5, read John chapter 8, read John chapter 10. The Jewish leaders did not like what Jesus was saying, and he certainly didn't condone what their belief system was all about. And if Jesus was implying that they are gods right now, then Jesus doesn't seem to even understand what is required for a Mormon to become a god because he's saying it, as you've mentioned, of these wicked religious rulers who certainly were not meeting the requirements of exaltation even by a Mormon standard. And again, we go back to he's using present tense. They were not gods right at that point. And Jesus didn't say you have the potential to become a god or you're in the process of becoming god. Jesus doesn't use that kind of language. So again, we have a case of Mormons reading into this passage, approaching the passage with a presupposition and trying to twist the scripture to make it conform to the idea that they already have. And this is why context is so important. We need to understand the background. We need to understand the surrounding text. And as you're pointing out, you need to understand the verb tense, present tense versus future tense. There's a big difference. Tomorrow, we're going to continue our look at this Gospel Topics essay titled, Becoming Like God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.